This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am truly, sir, in respect of a fine workman, I am but, as you would say, a cobbler, Mark Bickney. And with me, as always, is my friend, faithful and just to me, when the poor hath cried, Walker hath wept, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Long, salty tears. I'm doing fantastic, Mark. These are, of course, references to the fact that as we are recording, this, today is the 15th of March, the Ides of March, honored in my favorite Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar, which is sadly underappreciated. Hamlet is nothing but a dithering sociopath. Julius Caesar, on the other hand, solid work of fiction. Solid. Yes. Anyway, uh, yesterday was also Pi Day, which I think is a silly holiday. It was also my birthday. And uh, I would like to share with you a hot take that I've already had on social media, and that is Pi is overrated. I disagree. Disliking Pi the number would be wholly irrational. But uh, the pastry, look, there's so many better pastries. Pi is where it's at. Give me a solid cookie. Give me a cake. Key lime pie. Baby. Give me even... A, oh, the cream pies are better than the other pies. I will absolutely give you that. Anyway, so this is a <laughs> podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the Aurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment where I get to crap all over another beloved property. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. And we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter and the topic this week, which is putting your best foot forward. All about those games that need to make a good first impression by virtue of setup, modules, scenarios, what have you, and when they often fail. So, Walker, what did we review last year? Exactly one year ago, we reviewed a game called Star Wars Outer Rim. And it was on the, I was on the social webs, Mark, and they were talking about how they had gone, they had gone into their local stores. And unfortunately, Star Wars Outer Rim was in... The bargain bin. So I'm not <laughs> sure exactly what that means. Does that mean that the bin is now on reduced price because you have to waste your time getting these shitty games out of it in order for you to buy it? <laughs> Just how far Fantasy Flight has fallen. They used to, you know, this, this used to be the kind of game that they would nonetheless churn out a, a couple of expansions for. They used to have that lovely little experiment they did where they would do p- print-on-demand expansions for smaller types of things. I mean, even their more obscure releases tend to get an expansion or two, but not that I'm glorifying the expansion-heavy model of Fantasy Flight back in its heyday, but they don't even do any Star Wars anymore. It's all the it's, it's all the miniature arms now. Yep. All I can remember from Star Wars Outer Rim was that it was like much like the Cowboy Bebop mm-hmm. uh, 
game. It was just this plodding of moving your spaceship around, not giving you that like dynamic zipping through space feeling. It was very tedious and plodding. Absolutely. It's a shame because I'm I'm accustomed to being underwhelmed by Corey Kaneski games, but it was also co-designed by Tony Fanchi, who did excellent, excellent work on Civilization and New Dawn. So anyway, that's what we talked about last year, which is Star Wars Outer Rim. Haven't played it. Haven't thought about it. Now, on to the games we played this week. Mark, I played this game with Butterfly Babe called Pale Yo. See what I did there? Yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's the quality humor we present here on So Very Wrong About Games. My this joke is... was that it was about friendship in Ireland and it was called Palio. Well, this being said, if you know any new players to board games and they have a thing for albino cave people, then this is the game... Very pale troglodytes. ...you want to get for them. This is a game where it has very interesting backs that give you pseudo-choices that you don't (laughs) really have. Um, Mark, you're not going to agree with this uh, analogy or comparison, but it just reminded me of Forgotten Waters, where... You know, you have these subsets of skills, you have, you're presented with these color choices, i.e., you know, well, what skills do I have to make these choices? And so you pick a card and did I have enough skills to do it? Yes or no. And then you move on to the next mission. I mean, I guess the problem is that when I think of Forgotten Waters, I don't think of gameplay elements. I think of the writing. I think of the scenario design. I think of the little bit of world building. I think of the tiny bit of character that you're supposed to embody in your individual character. And I remember having a great time and laughing. When you started to explain the rules of Paleo, part of it is that we explain rules and we internalize rules in very different ways. I think about the round structure and I think about what I'm going to do in the context of the round structure. And so if you start with anything else, I I tend to get unmoored. And that kind of contributed to it. But it was one of those things where you explain the game and I'm like, what? Where are the choices here? And, and, And you're like, that thing that I just told you. You mean that thing over which I have no control? Yes, that's your choice. All right, and uh, I was I, I was honestly borderline taken aback by how little there was to Paleo. I, I just I kept waiting for something to show up that never did. It was bizarre, and I agree with you. It's it's strange that the uh, the, the representation of of early cave people was Lily White. That's bizarre. And there's this theory about, oh, well, you know, you can craft and get technologies and so forth. But really, at the end of the day, it was, well, you get these resources, and then you wait for the opportunity to turn those resources into points, and then you do. It was like the worst parts of an incredibly dry Euro engine builder without being able to build an engine or without any interesting resource conversion going on. This being said, she is enjoying it, so I think I'm enjoying it through her, the fact that she really likes to play it. So. Sure. And... and we're five missions in. It seems as though the choice is uh, you sort of see the cards as they come through, so you sort of plan ahead. You try to remember what the back. You try to remember what the backs look like, so you sort of say, "Okay, well, we really need that card because it has a, a victory condition, so we got to make sure we get our perception up to a certain amount." But other than that, it's just to give you an indication of what happens in this game, dear listeners. You have this personal deck of cards. You set out three of them in a row. And then based on what's on the back of the card, you pick one, and the card will ask you sometimes, do you meet a skill threshold? If so, various things happen. If not, not. The only part where there's any choice is, as Walker says, trying to play some kind of game of memory 
thinking, well, I, I, I want something like this to happen. Maybe this card will give it to me. And or those instances where you're engaged in triage with the other players. But that depends on, number one, the other players having the ability to help you because not every card has it. And it doesn't seem to be evenly distributed throughout the, 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 the given deck. So it's not even like you can, you can pitch towards trying to maximize your chance to help from what I saw of one play, admittedly. And... Since they very frequently, very rarely is it the case that two people have anything interesting or important to do, <laughs> anytime there's the opportunity to get points, you might as well just go off and help somebody. I, it, was, it, was, it was bizarre. I, I cannot believe how much enthusiasm there is for Paleo, yeah, given I'm, how little there is there. I'm surprised how the different missions don't change it up that much. It does change really? up sort of like the round mm-hmm. end structure, so it, it does change up, but the, the fundamental gameplay, you know, in quotations, <laughs> really does not change that much. That's really weird because the only element, uh, the only caveat that I would give is one would hope that future mission structures give something interesting or, or, or something cool. Well, they have these things called the secret cards, right? But this is, you know, you can almost call it a legacy game because once you've seen them, you've seen them. And, yeah. And, like, you've seen it. Uh, well, I guess I don't want to spoil it for other people. Well, so no, I no, can't no. really well, talk. We can, we, can, we, can, we can talk about it formally. If anything, it just seems to minimize the replay value of the missions because... A secret came up, and you were gamely role-playing it along, saying, oh, I guess I'll do this thing, not knowing what happens. And then this thing happened, and it's like you clearly knew what was going to happen. How many missions are there in the box? Uh, I think there's seven or eight. Really? Oh, my goodness. It goes from A to J, and then you... They use two letters in every mission, so and then I see. and then says you can mix any two letters that you want up afterwards and sort of make your own missions as well. Well then, and the final mission I believe combines three of the letters together. Sure. Honestly, the only context in which I could possibly recommend this is if you have children that are really into prehistory, or at least some strange sanitized version of prehistory. And I don't even mean dinosaurs. If if you can kill dinosaurs in this game, that'd be better. That would be cool. Yeah. So this is. I think that happened in the Bible. That's what I've heard. Yeah. This is put out by Z-Man Games and designed by Peter Rustmeyer. I got to play more missions of Micro Macro Crime City. I got to introduce it to Dr. Contra, and Micro Macro Crime City continues to entertain. Now, I will say, having now seen about roughly half the cases in the core box, the value is tremendous, the narrative is tremendous, the joy is tremendous. I'm a little bit troubled by some of the representations. Some of the representations, particularly of women and of other people, eh, it's not so hot. Uh, and that, that, that's one of my key misgivings. But honestly, other than that, I think it, it's great for almost any age. If your kid is old enough for Law & Order or any other kind of crime procedural where people die and some people do terrible things. I don't mean SVU. I mean normal Law & Order. Then I think they're ready for Micro Macro Crime City. And it is really good with any number of players. Like sometimes you get these games that are effectively solitaire endeavors where only one player is giving any agency. And you're like, well, you might as well play it by yourself. Well, the last game we talked about that was Kingdom Rush. It's just a spatial puzzle where you're trying to figure out the optimal solution. But in Micro Macro, it is so good and so full of texture, you want someone else there so you can talk about what you're experiencing. That's how quality the little narratives are. You get to, uh, someone is going to point out a little bit of detail that you missed, which isn't necessarily going to help you advance the case per se. But they might just point out, look at the expression on that person's face as this is happening. And you you, you peer in, marvelous. Micro Macro has my highest recommendation. I hope they do more with the system because I think the core is good. And I'm not not saying because, you know, I, I want more content because there's not enough here. It's just a lovely little bit of graphic design in terms of making the map. And I think that with a new set of maps, you can have a new set of cases. And it's a lovely little package. Micro Macro Crime City is a joy and a delight. And as I constantly say, I thought I didn't like puzzles in board game form. And it just took something to really inject flavor and narrative into it to show how wrong I was. 
Micro Macro Crime City. You know, I also got to play Root. Root for me is one of those games that I would never pick and and think I don't like it until I'm actually playing it. And then, could, like, could you elaborate on that? I was actually curious. I, no, I, I don't know what it is. It's, no, because anyway, so we oh. pulled it. We pulled it out, and you didn't say anything when it was suggested. Dewey was the one who wanted to play it, and about two turns in, you were like, "Yeah, I wasn't relishing this, but this is so good." And I, I've got no problem remembering how good it is, what? but I just didn't know what you're, the nature. of I your think reflecting on it now, it's just sort of like not. Not remembering what all the other powers do and trying to remember all these new races that they have and trying to figure out how to stop everybody. Oh, I see. Because it really is down to the other players to stop everyone. You can't just sit there and play your own game. You have to see what everybody else is doing. You have to know how their faction works as well or else the game is going to be – it's going to break down. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we played with the Underworld expansion and with the Riverfolk expansion, and sure enough, we had the Otters, Eerie, Moles, and the Corvids. So both of the new factions from Underworld, one from River Riverfolk and one from the base game. And with the very, very minimal guidance that you have in the back of the new updated Law of Root, you can pick more or less any combination you want, and they tend to work. I have yet to see a truly degenerate setup. Now, we really don't like the Vagabond, and one of the great things about having more expansions is that's more factions you can throw in without having to worry about the Vagabond, because the Vagabond's a weird... They're the only faction for whom you need to go and stomp them, and you don't get any victory points for doing so, and so it feels more artificial than the more organic competition you're going to get out of the other factions. And I think someone around the table was commenting, you know, the, the only shame about the overhead is you're going to have to worry about cross-referencing lots of different rulebooks. And that's one of the other great things about the way the production of Root has been handled. Every time they put out an expansion, they put out a new omnibus law of Root. And so every faction was just able to turn to their single page of rules and find everything you needed to find. So this is an example of a game that could be overwhelmingly cumbersome after several cycles of expansions but handles it well and is structured in such a way that it's just a whole bunch of new factions. You don't really have to worry about it. We also played on a new map. And again, that was just a couple of different new rules that people didn't have difficulty internalizing that led to some interesting geographical instances. We played on the the, the cave map where there's actually incentive for holding dirt and when it's a point of turn. It changed hands several times, but it wasn't the overwhelming dominant focus of the game. I like that map because it pushes the end game. It shortens the game a little bit, I think, right? Because you're getting points yes. for roots. You're getting points for holding that location. And I think it just puts a little more emphasis on getting going and not sitting back. So I, I really enjoyed that. This is designed by Cole Worley and put out by Leader Games. And that is Root. Play the game of Raw. Now, the, you might wonder what is the best auction game ever made. Uh, but certainly, uh, I think most people would agree that whatever it is, it's probably designed by Reiner Knizia. And I would argue half seriously that every game is fundamentally an auction game. And some games are not considered auction games that really are. For example, I would call Blue Moon an auction game. And and, uh, that's hardly a particularly controversial opinion. But if you don't think Blue Moon is an auction game, then I think Raw is definitely the best auction game ever designed. This was put out in 99, and I've been playing it ever since I got into the hobby. I wasn't in the hobby in 99, but I've I've been playing it for well over a decade now. And I haven't played a Knizia auction game in a while. It was a shame. And so we had the opportunity to play with Huey and Louie. And Louie is not exactly what you would call an auction game kind of person. So it was a certain degree of hesitancy that I introduced Raw to him. But he took to it gamely, and he quite enjoyed it. 
And it was one of those instances where, again, kind of like Walker's reaction to Root, Huey's reaction to, to, to Raw was like, oh, yeah, I forgot how good this is. Because the moment, you know, the third or fourth tile hits the, the, the table and it's no longer a question of what is this lot worth to me, but what is this lot worth to me relative to how much it's worth to other players and what is the economy going to do in response to my adding a tile from the bag? Or do I want to call an auction just so someone else is going to take it off my plate? And the same thing happened to me that happens very often. I went into the second epoch and I had no low-value bidding tiles. I hate that, Walker. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. It's one of the situations where they're like, look at your sub-tiles, you're going to run the table. It's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I had nothing lower than a seven. And so I felt so unwilling to commit to anything. Ugh, I love Raw. Raw is absolutely fabulous. It is a great little economic knife fight. It is set collection done well. We talked about this in the context of Sumatra. Reiner Knizia can do set collection and make a game that is only set collection, but he usually does it really, really well in the context of adding it on to another fundamental game system. And the auction system of Raw is so clean, so simple, and so brilliant that I highly recommend it. So Raw is, I think, currently kind of sort of in between printings. Dice Tree Games, that lovely Korean publisher, is supposed to be putting out an edition. They've been threatening to do so for well over a year now. But, you know, pandemic times start to know. Yeah, Raw's been handed around quite quite often and has several different uh, iterations. So Absolutely. it'll be interesting to see what the next one looks like. And that was Raw by Reiner Knizia. I got to get Dune Imperium back to the screen. This is designed by Paul Dredden and put out by Direwolf Games because we've yet to see a physical copy here in our little humble igloo town. And it's not getting better, unfortunately. <laughs> no, it's too bad. But I'm wondering, I'm hoping that the physical form will clear this up because it's just sort of, it's a, uh, a deck builder with all of this other stuff added on and the tempo seems great. You're going around, you're, you know, placing workers, you're getting, you know, resources to get these cards. And then, and then there's a combat and then there's, you know, the, you know, there's all these things that just bog the game down from, from being fun. But I'm wondering if once we play it in real life, maybe that will flow a little better. We'll see. One can only hope. One can only hope. It's like, uh, you get all these special powers. I think they've done their best to sort of, you know, it's sort of like Clank, where some of the cards all—it's a uh, like a uh, sorry, a deck builder that all the cards may intermingle with each other. Like the different clans will intermingle, so you get that sort of feeling that maybe they put it in a little bit of effort to make it feel like Dune. But lots of subsystems, maybe too many. Is the playing time going down? No, this. Uh, but I think this was a player problem, I not, see. not a game problem. It might have been a little bit of both, but this was. Over two hours, so I'm just not sure if it was the game or this one particular player. I've heard a number of reports that at maximum player count, in excess of two hours is the norm, which is troubling because I I, I definitely agree that the game doesn't warrant that kind of length. I think Dune Imperium, if it could reliably be 90 minutes, then it might be something I'd be willing to play once in a while, even though I agree with you it's not particularly stellar. But two hours, definitely no. Hard pass. Played Res Arcana Lex et Tenebrae. So the base game of Res Arcana is up on Board Game Arena, has been for a few weeks now. The expansion was released a couple years ago called Lex et Tenebrae, and it mostly just adds more cards and more stuff. The, the, the kind of thing that you can inject into a tableau builder relatively quickly. I really enjoy Res Arcana when I want a lightning quick, incredibly pared down tableau builder. Thomas Lehman knows how to do tableau builders really, really well. And somebody suggested Race for the Galaxy, and I thought, ah, I don't know if I'm in the mood for Race for the Galaxy, which is an unusual thing. I, I, I'd been, I was almost gamed out that day, but I said, I could go for 20 minutes of Res Arcana, absolutely. Smart Money says that when you're playing Res Arcana, you should win by the fourth round. 
I am not that good at Resurrection. <laughs> I think the closest I've ever come, maybe once I've, I've ended the game in fourth rounds, but this is one of those games where people have definitely studied it a little bit. You read those those posts on board gaming and you say, well, you know, obviously, if this is in there, then what you do is you draft this other thing, and then, then you get it by uh, second action on turn four. And I'm like, what game are you playing? I like to just faff about with my little cards and have fun with my little tableau. And I thought I was doing really well. I finished the game in round five this time, but that is not what experts would consider acceptable. But that's fine. Res Arcana is good. It, it, it's got a little bit of player interaction. I wish it had a little bit more, but I guess in that case, uh, then my, my ineptitude would just shine all the brighter. Res Arcana is a great example of stripped-down design that nonetheless allows a certain degree of study, and if you play with the drafting version, you can elaborate a little bit and make the game last a little bit more and get a little bit more in-depth if you're so inclined. But I think it is a nice little game from Thomas Lehman and Sandcastle Games. That is Res Arcana. You and I got to play Beyond the Sun by Dennis K. Chan and put out by Rio Grande Games. And I don't know if this is the optimal way to play or or the way to win, but it seems to have this two-phase sort of thing that seems to be happening that that I'm enjoying. It's like, you know, do the dominance on the planets, you know, get your little tableau built up, and then, you know, you focus hard on the 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 technologies and, you you know, push for those end goals, and it seems to work well and is very you know fun to play i'm i'm interested i'm like focusing more on the end stuff and you know being able to play the entire game now as opposed to just you know flying my spaceships around and having fun knocking people out there so we streamed beyond the sun for parasocial saturdays the playing of beyond the sun was brought to you by domjot domjot if you're gonna get stabbed in the back over a game make it domjot and yeah, you, you're you were very good at focusing on the end game achievements this game, and I, I'll say the same thing about the planets and Beyond the Sun that I've said since the beginning. It's very much reactive. The more people invest in fighting you over the planets, the greater the diminution of your returns. And so, if there's lots of competition there, move elsewhere and focus on the techs. If there's too much competition over the techs, move to the planets. It's very d- rare for the table to be equally pressuring both at the same time. And I do like a certain degree of reactivity in this sense. And in, in, in this game, for example, nobody made it to a level 4 technology, which was very unusual. Uh, a number of people considered it, a number of people were turned away uh, from doing it, but in part because you rushed the, well not rushed, but you pushed for the endgame achievement so much, it was a relatively abbreviated game in terms of how developed the tech tree was, or in terms of how much colonization other players get to do. And that, But that's, that I think, again, it's a sign of the game's variability and flexibility. We weren't able to play with the preferred version of a technology draft, largely because we didn't have room on the table after all the technology was involved. And that's one of the one of the issues with Beyond the Sun. It sprawls a little bit, and it's the kind of game where you need to be able to read everything. But actually, the cameras made that easier, so that was kind of nice. Yeah, that's, that's a weird. I was thinking about doing like a thinking about a topic about that, but the fact that you know your our eyes are drawn immediately to the screen because you know screen you know screen time. Look, there's the screen. We can <laughs> read it on the screen. That's what we're used to. It's like oh yes, the cards on the screen, right? But I'm, it's weird. Yeah, Beyond the Sun was my personal top game of last year, other than our game of the year, Cosmic Frog, and I, I, I'm definitely glad to go back to it at any time. Still am a big fan of Beyond the Sun. Yeah, everyone has a, you know, their own special player power, has this interesting thing where you're building your tableau up, so you get, and the fact that you get income every round, that's the key to this game. Yeah. Bam. You do have to conserve resources, but at the same time, you never feel like you're just saving up to do something interesting. You get to do something interesting every turn. And that is Beyond the Sun. Got to play another game of Scapegoat. I commented last time when we talked about Scapegoat, the social deduction game by John Perry, that I wanted to see how it played with three, because Scapegoat says it goes from three to six, and we've mostly been playing with four or five. 
And in addition to being scaled down in terms of time compared to other social deduction games, this was also scaled down in terms of player count. And I wanted to see if it would work well at three. And I can say personally that the answer is yes. Scales beautifully. Every player count we've tried, we've tried every count but six. Happy Coronaversary, by the way. It was a year year ago today that we played Megasiv, which was our last big in-person gathering. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... Uh, so we haven't been able to we, we haven't been in the same room as five other gamers since the beginning of this, but I have no doubt that it would work well there. Anyway, Scapegoat has yet to fail. It's the it, it is the kind of game where it's not well. You have to be in the right mood for it, or you have to have the right players around the table, or you have to have played a couple times to understand the dynamics. The moment you explain the rules, everyone sits down. The moment a single card play happens, people are like, "Wait, why did you do that? <laughs> what are you What are you saying? What wh- What? <laughs> what card did you take? What color was it?" What's going on? Uh, it, it's, it really is a triumph. It's so flexible and so accessible and so good. The only downside to Scapegoat so far has been, there's been is that there has been a non-trivial number of unforced errors. At the start of the game, you determine who the scapegoat is, and everyone knows who the scapegoat is, with the exception of the scapegoat who thinks that it's some other random player. And this is handled by what I would have said in the abstract was a relatively simple matrix on the back of your player board. You roll a couple dice, that gives you a coordinate on a grid, and that's the person. But more than one person has committed more than one type of error in terms of figuring out how this is. And if anybody does that, then the entire game is ruined. Now, it's a 15 to 20 minute game. Big, fat, hurry deal. The first time it happened, I assumed that the person was an idiot. The second time it happened, I assumed the person was an idiot. But the moment you get to the third or fourth time, eh, it's a bit of an issue. I think it's happened to us three times total in a number of different ways. And that's unfortunate. I, I, again, I don't know how much it is uh, how, uh, to blame the game, and I hesitate almost to bring it up. But the fact that it has been recurring is somewhat of an issue. Now, this is a review copy we got from the designer, but with that minor caveat aside, the the unforced error, I think that Scapegoat is one of the great social deduction games, and again, it even goes over well with people who normally don't like social deduction games. So, it's the right game at the right time, I think. You and I actually got to play Aquatica this time, Mark. actually was a game this time there was actually rounds and we got to and you know build a deck towards something so that was exciting this is a game that's de- uh, designed by ivan travowski and put out by cosmodrome games cosmodrome games and so what it is is a sort of like a deck builder you're sort of going through your deck and you get to decide when you pick up your cards again and you get your whole hand of cards out and you get to conquer these cities which slide into this interesting personal board and they all have bonus actions and you slide them up and you you know use all the bonus actions and then you have to play another action to score them and lets you pull them out of your board and put them into a pile and has all these you know combos that you can do makes it all very interesting and i i really enjoyed it this time for sure I was very surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I played it a number of times solo. I played it with with two players a couple of times but always in the basic version. And so this is going to come up later during our topic about games that need to need, have to put their best foot forward. This was by far the best playing of it. We played it with three players with the advanced goals. And the game had a chance to breathe. Now, I'm a little bit worried about the lack of diversity in terms of the market. It's not... 
it's one of those deck builders the same way that Concordia is a deck builder. It's, you know, you manage your entire deck as your hand. And to a certain extent, games like that live and die on the quality of the cards available. And the cards are mostly cool, but there's not enough of them. I, I would like there to be more variety. There is an expansion on the way. I'm very curious to see how the expansion works because I don't know that the game needs more sub-mechanisms or even more locations to conquer. The locations seem appropriately diverse. I just like a slightly fatter deck with more character options. But yes, I enjoyed it a great deal, and I'd, I'd, I'd happily play it again. I'm looking forward to playing it again. That was Aquatica. We played Flick of Faith. Flick of Faith was put up by Awaken Realms Light, which is their uh, more, you know, light version. And Walker finally got his replacement green pieces in, so we were able to play a four-player game. This is a flicking game with special powers, and I have to say that playing it four-player was simultaneously more enjoyable and less satisfying than playing it two-player, because like the standard refrain of most dexterity games I, I, I comment on, very fun to play, very nice, very novel, very engaging, happy to do it, not much of a competitive experience, because the chaos really starts to, to ramp up. It is one of those instances where, by virtue of the topography of the board, certain players are going to just start messing with you, largely by accident. And this was even before we played one round with our eyes closed. <laughs> that was one of the yes. modifiers that got into it. But even before that, people would be trying to go for something. Instead, they would end up costing somebody three points in the given round, and they did so largely by accident. Such is the way of things. A similar thing happened in Sonora, the flick and right, but to a less extent. Yeah, I, I was gonna, I was going to bring that up. But Sonora takes so much longer, right? So the so does it? I think so. Really? Because Flick of Faith is four rounds and you're done. I I don't remember how many rounds Sonora was. It depends on the number of players. Yeah, but it just seemed much longer and a lot more to it, like crossing stuff off and managing your sheet. But it had the same fundamental gameplay where once it got around to your turn, what you had done last turn was highly irrelevant, and it always came down to your last flick to try to you know get the scoring that you actually wanted. Yes, but here's one thing about Sonora. Your discs will always matter towards something. Maybe not the thing you wanted, but they're not going to be flicked off an island so they're useless, which happens very often in Flick of Faith. This is true. The other thing about Flick of Faith that I strongly dislike is it seems to be determined almost entirely by what happens in the first and second rounds. There is this notion of infrastructure. You can flick your profits so that you erect temples, and temples are these large, chunky pieces that are extremely difficult to dislodge. And you keep reminding, I've heard you remind people over and over, well, you know, if you knock the temples off an island, they get removed from the game. I've never seen it happen. If you try to use your profit such that it will knock a temple off, basically what you're asking to do is have your profit careen off the table because the temple is so big, <laughs> it's not going to happen. So in every game I've seen, whoever gets the more temples out in round one wins. Because it just provides an insurmountable advantage that just compiles round after round after round. Which, again, is not a grave sin. It's a quick game. I like to flick things, but I, I would prefer to play Sonora, honestly. Not that they're exceptionally similar, but they're both flicking, multiplayer flicking games where there's some notion of scoring points. Uh, there's no area majority in Sonora, really. Uh, and, but the area majority in Flick of Faith, I think, is severely undermined by the presence of the temples. So, But I think the teaching for Flick of Faith is much quicker, for sure. Yes. So not only did we play Flick of Faith, but we also had a quick game of Strike. I subjected them to Strike. And there's not much more to say to Strike, but we did play it. It's a game where you, you know, you cream dice into this fighting pit. And depending on how many dice are in there, you, you know, you either want to hit a bunch of them or it doesn't matter. And hopefully pass it to the next player with no dice because that will require them to throw all of their dice. And you're trying to get, get to be the last person holding dice. And... 
It's perfectly fine, not fantastic. It is barely a game. It is barely a game, but it will be enjoyed by children and family members alike, I'm sure. I'd pr- I prefer it two-player because that massive penalty of having to toss all your dice at once if the arena is empty. I don't want that to be due to the vicissitudes of turn order. If I do it, I want it, I want it to be because my one opponent has forced me to do it, not because I happened to be sitting to the left of the person who managed to pull off this feat. And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, Jack Vassal Memorial Fund just started up, so it is a fantastic cause. If you go to Board Game Geek. You can see all the different auctions that they have, and it goes to a fund that helps gamers out when they have times of need. So check out the stuff there. There's usually some fantastic packages. Jack Vassal Memorial Fund. Mark has already talked about the fact we streamed Beyond the Sun. So next Saturday, the 20th, we are going to be doing Project Elite. So check your local Twitch. It'll be at 1030 a.m. Eastern Time. So I mentioned this already in our Patreon-exclusive show, Pledge of Indifference. Uh, I'm rather troubled by what's happening in the latest Zombicide, which is Zombicide Undead or Alive. Normally, we wouldn't bother talking about the latest Zombicide unless and until they get to Zombabees, which, I mean, they're running out of options. It's going to happen sooner or later. But they do the thing in Zombicide, which we've talked about a number of times on the show. They decide to wholly appropriate the sacred religious standards, practices, and imagery of indigenous North Americans. And how often is this going to happen? What they do is they take the the quote-unquote trickster spirit, who's represented as a canine form, and turn them into an abomination. And you're not going to see this happen to mainstream Abrahamic faiths. You're not going to see Abraham or David or Christ show up as a miniature in these kinds of games. So why do we accept it when there are totem poles in Manitoba or when, you know, the trickster spirit is showing up as a, a literally a baddie to be shot in the face in a zombicide game? Not a good look, Simon. Do not approve. This being said, Simon is, is going to be not expanding, but expanding Marvel, their Marvel United game. Uh, see, see what I did there? I did, this and I more, wish I didn't. More quality, so very wrong about games wordplay. See, this is, this is where, why <laughs> we get Quality with to, a K. That's all I got to say about that. More, more Marvel United, <laughs> they're going to be doing X-Men. Hooray for Simon. Yeah, they do a great job. And not so lastly... Uh, Dominant Species Marine by GMT Games. See, they're getting it there, Mark. Have you seen the box? It looks like a game people actually might want to play. Now, when you look in the box, they still have, you know, the cards, you know, because you while you're playing it, because it's a GMT game, you might be so overwhelmed by the rules, you might forget what you're playing. So don't worry. You just look down at the cards, and it'll tell you what game you're playing and also uh, the company that produced it. So Dominant Species Marine by GMT Games on every card because, you know, that's what they have to do. You done? Yep, I'm all done. You, you, you done? Also, this is show 160, I believe. You said you were done, and then you kept talking. See, I got my errata kit for... Imperial Struggle, and for Versailles 1919. Two games that, by the way, are really good that were published last year. And I had a joy of a time just sitting with the components and replacing out the erratic cards and stickering over the minor problems uh, in Imperial I, Struggle. I, I bet you didn't have any, you had no problems knowing which games they went into. 
because it told you right on the back of the cards. So seeing as this is show 160, means we have to talk about a Patreon. And I keep forgetting to say this because Mark does so much work for the Patreon stuff. And I want to make sure that I thank him for doing all of this extra work. And he has some great content on there. He does a newsletter. He does uh, like feature topics. And it's a great thing to check out. We do have a Patreon. That's our Patreon talk. Sent out a whole bunch of games last week to patrons. Ascending Empires, KLS1303. We, we like giving away games. A lot of leftover games, we ship them out to patrons. So Yeah, and we also do tons of polls on there. Uh, games that we're going to stream, they get to vote on. Games uh, that we're going to feature on the podcast, they get to vote on. I, ne- I think the next top poll topic is going to be, should Walker shut his damn full mouth? There will be one poll option. The results will be unanimous. <laughs> So that's the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our topic this week, which is putting your best foot forward. Games that either succeed or fail to make a good first impression by virtue of the setup, the scenario, or whatever modules that might happen to be put in. Walker actually in preparation said he wanted to save for for last a game that he thinks does it the worst. Yeah, I said to Mark that, you know, make sure we keep it. We won't talk about it while we, we'll save it to no, the no, very no. end. No, no, no. We'll save it to the end. We'll just, see, I'm see just teasing it, it it'll be the same. like a professional. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if I'm going to say what you want me to say because I'm not sure. We'll find out. Yeah. But I think that I, I we can start. I think with the one that I suspect we're both going to say does it the best because I've been talking about this a lot. If you're going to have a game with scenarios, if you're going to have a game with optional modules, if you're going to have a game with any kind of variable setup, you have to make sure you grab them as best as possible in the first play because very often, if we're talking about hobbyists, if they don't like it the first time, they're not going to play it a second. And if you tell me, for whatever reason, I'm willing to do this for, for television shows. Like, if you tell me, like like uh, Babylon 5, for example, it gets good in the second season. And by the time you get to the second season, you're glad you wasted all that time in the first season. We're willing to do that. But if a bo- if you tell me that a board game is terrible until the nth play, I'm going to be like, can't I just skip to the scenario that's good? And if I start with a bad scenario, I'm probably not going to go to the next one. To my mind, the quintessential example of an awesome first scenario is Swag Favorite Space Hulk. Yep. Suicide Mission has stood this test of time. It doesn't hold back. It is in exactly the kind of way that you want to introduce a game system to somebody. This is the best that this game has to offer. We are going to front load the awesomeness so that if you play for the first time and if you start at scenario one, which in some games is a mistake, you are going to know how awesome Space Hulk is. I do have a slash here as well because a lot of uh, games that do this poorly are these campaign and or dungeon crawler games, 100%. right? And Kingdom Death Monster does not do that. They are thrown in. They set, you, they set the tone for you right off the beginning. Guess what? You're fighting this lion and most of you just died. <laughs> Welcome to Kingdom Death Monster. This is what's going to happen. So yes. thankfully that's how they run it. And like I said, I've got Space Hulk here for the exact same thing. Mission one right off the beginning. Fantastic. Which is one of, one of the reasons why... Fourth edition, I think, made such a gross error of changing what Scenario 1 was. Fine, add more scenarios to Space Hulk, but don't mess with Suicide Mission. It's been around for a long time for a reason. You're right, Kingdom Death Monster does a great job. It also does a great job of slowly on-ramping the paperwork. Because by the, you know, game two or three of Kingdom Death Monster, you're knee-deep in paperwork, but you it's introduced slowly in a very deliberate fashion, so... So I wanted to compare this to video games, just so you can sort of understand what we're talking about. I think... In video games, they have difficulty settings, right? And I think they're more just to make the game play itself easier, whereas it's different in, 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 I think, in some cases. In campaign games, it's definitely they're just trying to make the first mission easy. So I don't know what they're trying to do, like trying to catch you, make, you know, so this is a fun game. But I think (laughs) 
majority of what we're going to be talking about is just the usability issue. They're just trying to make it easier to learn off the beginning and get used to these mechanisms and make it not such a, you know, a, this giant, what people say, the cur- the learning curve right, right. off the, the, the beginning. The analogy that I would pull with respect to video games is those adventure or narrative-heavy video games where the tutorial is incredibly boring. That's how I've, 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 I've noped out of so many video games where the tutorial went on too long or to like, let me play this game. Show me what this thing has to offer. And you can do that by throwing somebody in, in medias res, like they do in kingdom death, or you can do that in any number of narrative ways in the context of either video games or board games, but don't hold back your quality because you're afraid I either can't handle it or because you're afraid that it's that the rest is going to be a letdown. If you if you buy my enthusiasm in a work of media, I'm there and I've got buy-in. I don't expect the, it to necessarily rise at a constant crescendo. The same the same thing is true of music for what it's worth. You know, the first track of your album can't be terrible. The second track doesn't have to up the intensity necessarily. But you have to be able to grab the, the first, especially in board games. Yes, because if you think back to some video games that you've played, they do this. They, you know, like, here's your starting mission. Oh, it's, you know, it's a hologram. This is how you use your stuff. <laughs> but there are other video games where it's like, look, you are this omni hero god here's you know and you're like blowing up cities and you're doing all this crazy stuff in the beginning it's like either you know in the future or or it's oh, know, sure. what you're about to be and then so you get a feel about what what you're building towards that's and one then, way to do it yeah. and then it's like pff, back to you know back to basics now you're, you know this is now you got to start building towards that and there's <coughs> quite a few you know big video games that do that Shout out to the incredibly underrated Dragon Age 2 that did that in a very novel way and subverted narrative expectations. But anyway, so let's talk about some games that don't necessarily do this terribly well. Well, I, let's talk about what they do. Like okay. just some very general things. Like they leave out some cards. They block off some parts of the map. They tell you to ignore certain symbols on cards under the boards. They reduce abilities. Like they'll tell you to use either one side of the board or one side of your player board. Mm-hmm. Like the leader will be – so everyone's leader will be the same. You won't have any like funky cool power. So no these, asymmetry, yeah. And in miniature games, what they usually do is you get to fight with basic troops first. And then the next mission, they'll introduce some leaders and then the magic. You know, they'll just slowly ramp up so you'll know what you're doing. There is programmed instruction, which is usually a more formalized way of doing several of these things. There are scenario-based games where they ramp things up in terms of the scenario. There are a number of very, very bad offenders there that I'll I'll get to uh, later. Uh, Then there are ones that, and this isn't kind of them doing it deliberately. It's usually at the expense of marketing. There are games that are not really a full game. I'm thinking specifically of my complaints about God Tier. You know, the starter set isn't a starter set, which was a weird throwback to the days of most collectible games ever since most games before Keyforge. You know, they say it's a starter set, but it's not really a starter set, so you're not really playing the full game. That's a great way to turn people off. Warcry, we had that problem with Warcry 2. It's like, well, you know, you can kind of customize your forces, but not with what you have here. So. And there's some reasons why they do it. I have some reasons why. Sometimes maybe the rule book is is uh, it's a weak rule book, so they want to gradually introduce all these subsystems to you because they didn't write the, they feel the rule book doesn't do a good enough job or they feel, we've seen this in the past too, that, where the game is too long. So they give you these, the short little game at the beginning, so you know, that shortens it up so you're not like thrown in this two hour game right off the beginning. Yeah, I don't, okay, so, so going back to the rule book, because I think that there's this this temptation to think that programmed instruction is an easier way to approach game systems when I think it's quite the opposite. Because when you engage in programmed instruction, 
you typically hobble your rulebook such that you then don't have a good reference document. You don't know where to find things. The a key offender for this was actually the first edition of Through the Ages, or the sorry, the, the first two editions before it became a, a new story of civilization. I could never remember to look something up. Wait, were these event cards first introduced in the advanced game, or in the full game, or were they introduced in the intro game? And as a result, in, in an attempt to make the game simpler and more approachable, it made the game more confusing. Because, and I can't be the only one who learns this way, I can remember rules and I can internalize rules when they are attached to a broader structure. If you start introducing things to me in a freeform random scattershot way, which is the effect of reading a programmed instruction rulebook, I'm going to have a much harder time internalizing any of this. There's a, a game in particular that I, I kept trying to get into but couldn't, namely Earth Reborn. And one of the reasons why I could never really get into Earth Reborn was because of its slavish devotion to programmed instruction. So sh I, it kept making me want, feel like I wanted to skip several of the scenarios because they looked like basic non-games. But then the question is, where do you start? Yeah, With that's, that's my last <clears throat> point here is how long they make that this training period for. I think it's just all about how short they make it. And, you know, it shouldn't be the, the same length as the entire game. It should just be a nice short, you know, here are the basic systems and then throw you right into the main game. Can you think of any games that do that well? The only one that comes to mind is Space Alert. The sort of incredibly rudimentary training thing that you don't even really have to play as a mission. You can just read through and it's going to walk you through how it works. And then they say, okay, here's the main game. Uh, Chrono Masters did an interesting way where you learned right in the rule book. You know, you did the, you, you put your figures right in the book and it showed ah. you through a few little mechanisms and then you're right into the main missions. It's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. The only time I've seen programmed instruction do rel done relatively well is up front, and that is mostly because most people play Scenario 1 of Upfront. There are people who have been playing Upfront for decades who've never played anything other than Scenario 1. So that's really an example of someone leading with their best foot forward. It's kind of like how uh, you've probably played Suicide Mission upwards of 95% of your playings of Space Hulk, whereas Upfront is 100% the first mission. I also think that Programmed Instruction was done relatively well in Magic Realm's 2nd Edition, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Magic Realm is not a game that puts its best foot forward because, you know, it starts with an 80-page rulebook, and that's not really the way you want to start things. But, I, I yeah, I, I find most attempts at Programmed Instruction serve to show me a whole bunch of non-games with the expectation that I'm going to like a game. I don't know, and, and if you know people like this, please please let us know. People who want to play a really complicated hobby game like Earth Reborn, like Through the Ages, like well, or like Upfront, or like Magic Realm, but can't take it all at once, and can only do it if they play these various non-games first. I, I, I honestly think it's kind of like the law of excluded middle. Like Either you want to play dense hobby games or you don't. And it's fine if you don't. I'm not judging people who don't want to do that. There are people who think pandemic is way too complicated. That's cool. That's fine. I just don't know if there's this whole class of gamer that wants to play crunchy, complicated hobby games and wants to play six non-scenarios first to do it. Well, Jaws the Lion thought that there was. Right. So what they did is they gave everyone a player deck on every single card. It wrote down what it did and how it, yes. you know, so little tiny little player aids and sort of baby stepped you through, you know, each scenario up until number four. 
And we skipped that. We The way we learned Gloomhaven was by starting with scenario one of the main box of Gloomhaven. And Gloomhaven does a good enough job of on-ramping in more complicated effects just as you level up. I didn't feel that it needed this kind of weird airsats tutorial mode, but then again... I don't know. They they must have thought that they needed to because they were trying to put it in front of people at Target. I, but honestly, I, I again, I don't know if that audience exists. I don't know if that audience that, that wants to be on-ramped in that way is actually there. Then again, I don't know. Maybe there are hobbyists who had played Gloomhaven before and played the tutorial missions of Jaws of the Lion and really enjoyed them. I have difficulty imagining that, though. Things that are easy that they omit for whatever reason, like terraforming Mars... They give you these beginning corporations and the drafting mechanism. They told you not to play with that at the beginning. So they pull out Beyond the Sun. We talked about how that's that whole drafting of the technologies, which is just a basic thing that improves the game so much. It's true. I I don't know. I don't think Beyond the Sun or even Terraforming Mars is particularly a compelling example of this at its worst. Because I think of games where they rip out all the really compelling stuff. Because Beyond the Sun, even with its basic setup, is it, you know you got all the technologies to worry uh, to worry about and all the new discoveries of the new planets and all that kind of stuff. I'm thinking of games like Food Chain Magnate, who say maybe for your first game, don't play with the milestones. It's not no. Why would you <laughs> Why would you want to do that? That's funny. I've never read that. That would be <clears throat> awful. It sounds like a terrible idea. It sounds like a brutally calculational joyless experience. I mean, it was, yeah, it was sort of like that game of Magic Maze that we had where it, I only got to move left for the whole game. Oh, calm down. Now, sometimes it's a question of the rulebook that says, well, maybe you can't handle special powers yet, so play without the asymmetric boards. That's whatever. Fine. I mean, we're at the point now where we can read a rulebook and the overwhelming majority of the time are like, yeah, yeah, fine, whatever, whatever you say. We'll, we'll skip right to the quote-unquote advanced game where I can handle my having a plus one in some context and a minus one in others. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes they recommend they just fundamentally alter the course of the game, like playing Cosmic Encounter without flares or playing Food Chain Magnet without milestones. Strikes me as mad. And Taverns of Tiefenhall does this, where it tells you just play with none of the modules that begins with, when really the game actually shines when you play with all of them. Well, I don't know about shines, it's a little strong. Wow, okay. Well, shines for some people. Formula Day has it, where they have an advanced side and a basic side for your driver. Paleo, sort of the same thing we talked about, where even the, the very first deck is so... The very first mission is so generic, even though it really doesn't get that much more. Yeah, well, see, that's on. the thing. Like, I, I, I struggled. <laughs> I yeah. was hoping that Paleo would be an example of this. But if you say it doesn't really get any better, then maybe it is leading with its best foot forward. <laughs> and Descent and Imperial Salt have that huge problem where they make the first few missions so basically easy exactly. that it's painful. Yeah, sometimes balance isn't a problem. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about claustrophobia, for example, because claustrophobia, very much like Space Hulk, and claustrophobia and Space Hulk have a number of similarities. The first mission in claustrophobia is great. It is a solid, solid mission. I would happily play that mission over and over, and in point of fact, I have. But the balance is tilted heavily in favor of the demon player. Depends on who you ask. It could go from somewhere to 60% to 85% likelihood of, of win for the demon player. That's okay in some games, not okay in others. It's okay in claustrophobia because largely of the thematic trappings. I think back to Descent First Edition. Descent First Edition, the first mission was a cakewalk for the heroes. But when it's a cakewalk for the heroes, you're playing four hours of tedium of killing inconsequential mobs. Compare that, on the other hand, to Level 7 Omega Protocol. And the first mission of Level 7 Omega Protocol is similarly, comparatively speaking, a cakewalk for the heroes. But 
there's enough for the overlord to do and the game doesn't last four hours. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's, that's the problem. You have to make the, the beginning scenario, which is fine if you make it easy, yes. but you have to make it short. Yes. Sometimes the easy is problematic. Like in the case of, if it's a pure co-op and it's way too easy, then that might be a bit of a, a difficulty unless you mask things properly. But yeah, it's, it's more a question of tedium. Sometimes too easy makes it tedious. Sometimes too hard makes it tedious. In the case of Descent, I would say too easy makes it tedious, whereas in other cases it doesn't. So there are some modules, I think, that either make or break the game. I remember very distinctly one of my all-time favorite games, The Resistance. I remember the first time playing The Resistance. We almost didn't play it a second time because we played it with the plot thickens cards. And the rulebook, a lot of this is about keying from the rulebook, right? The rulebook telling you what to expect. And a lot of rulebooks don't do a very good job of this. But The Resistance said, well, you know, the plot thickens increase the complexity, so maybe play your first game without it. And so, well, you know, complexity we can handle. No problem. Like 99% of the other rulebooks, we just tossed it right in. The problem with the plot thickens cards was it turned the game into something we didn't want to play. It wasn't a question of complexity. It was a question of sucking all the tension out of it. Made it more of a take that kind of experience where there was too much information in the system. And it wasn't so much about managing uncertainty. It was all these weird cards. And so we sat there and said, well, that was kind of weird. Maybe we'd try it again without the cards. And then it immediately became one of our group's favorite games. And we would play it every week for a very, very, very long time. I had the reverse experience with Argent the Consortium. I've talked a lot about how it took me to try the exp- the expansion module Summer Break to really fall in love with Argent and feel like it really stuck to its best. It's fortunate that in both of these cases, I was willing to spend the time necessary because I thought I could see something there. Well, actually, the resistance, I don't really recall there. It was probably peer pressure that made me try it again. <laughs> and I'm glad, it, I'm glad it worked. Peer pressure saves lives. It's true. Listeners, remember. So sometimes it's about which module to include, which module to exclude. And it can make all the difference. So I just have that last game that we're talking about, and then I have a bunch of stuff that talks about what happens when they do this. Sakadimi Walker, what's the game that you think? It's Charterstone, Mark. Charterstone. It's just a basic worker placement, and they and they piecemeal it to you so slow, and it's such a you know baby steps until, and we didn't even get to the interesting part. It was so slow. Do we know that there's an interesting part? It, it, well, eventually <laughs> it, do, it does get a little interesting where you get you know you eventually get some choices about you know what buildings you get to include in your own little district, and mm. and and you can. Yeah, it, Okay, they, I sure. got to play the digital implementation. I could see where they were going with it, but they just did not get there fast enough. Okay. Sure. What was yours that you had down? The worst? <clears throat> well, the, this, is a bit, this is a bit of a strange call because it's a game I really, really enjoy, and it's Cthulhu Death May Die. We had an interesting bit of pushback on the guild and elsewhere when we've been raving about Cthulhu Death May Die whenever it comes up, and people saying, oh, really? I thought it was fiddly and tedious and, and a whole bunch of other things. And then I, I realized why. They all played the first scenario. The first scenario was the one with fire. Fire will ruin many, many good games. And as a result of the fire, you had cultists with one wound running around. And I, I realized, once you get past the first scenario in Cthulhu Death May Die, first of all, a lot of the really absurd and ridiculous, glorious ones are either in se- Season 2 or in the Unspeakable box. But furthermore, how many times is there? A, uh, do you have to track the hit points of a cultist? 
99% of the time, you kill them in one shot, or you force rerolls so you can kill them in one shot. You don't need to track wounds on a cultist. They're disposable. Right. So, so, yes, in a context where there's fire and lots of fire going around and you have a whole bunch of monsters with one wound on them, yeah, Cthulhu Death May Die starts to become a much less interesting game. I think what they felt was that this was the pressure of, well, there are rules for fire. Maybe we should put fire in the first scenario so you'll remember them or something. But I think it was a bad call, and they really should have led with one of the stupid, ridiculous ones to really communicate the kind of game that they had, instead of making you think, well, this is basically like Mansions of Madness or any other Cthulhu game. We have to track a whole bunch of other little... No, 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 no. This is a silly game of silly people doing silly things. And I love it for it. And I love it for it. All right, so what happens when they do these things? Well, like we've already talked about, people just usually ignore those rules, so it's wasted effort. Uh, It gives a really bad first impression. You usually only get one chance to impress uh, players, right? There's Absolutely. A, there's a big cycle. People are, you know, lots, lots of times only playing once or twice, so you get one chance to show them why this game is great. If you have something exciting, something new, some interesting mechanisms, you better get them to the table immediately and not hide them behind a bunch of crud. Relatedly, this is more about marketing. This is the constant complaint that I have about a lot of Kickstarter campaigns, especially if you're showing me a game that is superficially similar or in a genre that's relatively crowded. Tell me why this one is different. The other thing that gets into a problem is sometimes I I put crutch here, but it's not really a crutch, but you get trapped into playing that basic scenario multiple times because you're constantly introducing people to the game and and you don't want to go to these advanced missions so you're constantly playing these these beginner missions over and over again and it just does not you know doesn't make your game shine right because it's an act of faith it's an act of, of of a certain degree of confidence as a game explainer which is already a hard thing to do and already requires a certain degree of confidence to know i think we should just skip to the second third fourth fifth whatever scenario when it gets good so chances are if you've got a mediocre first scenario even people who like the game and try to evangelize it they're going to be introducing the mediocre first scenario to other players and it just becomes the cycle that perpetuates itself and therefore it does the worst possible thing it pulls the player out of the experience and they lose interest so there's an entire genre of game that I think does a relatively bad job of putting its best foot forward, but it's kind of baked into the system. And that's most miniature skirmish games. I'm talking specifically about the tabletop ones where it's like, here you have 500 points, go build an army. It's like, ugh, well, I mean, I do. So most of the time you end up building armies for other people to introduce them to them, but then they don't get a sense of the customization. You might make a mistake, give them an army that doesn't play to their strengths. I've had, I've had, the only one where I've really had good luck breaking that cycle is with Gaslands, because it's fun to just move your car around when you're playing Gaslands. It's hard to give someone a vehicle in Gaslands that will not communicate the genius of the system to them. But most other times when I'm trying to show them another system and I have to build an army for them, it's like, eh, I don't know. And it's only diehards that I can show it to, so it's very, very hard to try to break people into the tabletop miniatures gaming hobby. One thing that a lot of games do that I think is a great way to bust out of a lot of these challenges is not necessarily to have scenarios where po- uh, where where it's possible, but instead do something that I would call bundling, which is to say you have a, a modular system and you can just say, if you're inclined to have a slightly more accessible experience, here are some bundles we can recommend. So Blacklist Games does this relatively well. Their bundles have been, have been pretty good at showing the systems to their advantage. We say, well, pick from these heroes and pick this scenario and pick this other thing. And it turns out relatively well. Most deck builders are reasonably good at suggesting setups, with the exception, of course, of Shadow Rift, which still hasn't learned its lesson. This was one of the big changes between Thunderstone Advance and Thunderstone Quest. Thunderstone Advance just 
refused to give suggested setups, and so you would have these items that never procced and never triggered because they didn't have the necessary setup. Battle Lord does the same sort of thing, even though uh, you'd be crazy to use these cards. At least it does come with it. So here's some cards. This is what comes in a basic army. You can yeah. just use that card and build it, even though you'd be mad to do so because it's so much fun to build your own. Well, that's just it. You can either start from scratch... Or you can take the pre- a preset army, or you can take a preset army and then and then fiddle around the margins. Yeah, no, it, it gives you the, the best of all possible worlds. A really good example of bundling is Spirit Island. Spirit Island does a great job of on-ramping complexity, not by showing you some non-version of the game, but instead saying, well, there's a 5 million and 1 special powers in the game, and you're still going to be playing with special powers, but here's maybe the recipe and list of special powers you want to start with your first games. And then you can jettison those, and players who, even on their first game, don't want to follow the recipe can still do that, so it works very well. Race for the Galaxy did something very interesting where... You played the full game again, but you started with preset hands, so you could get a look at, at, at the various kinds of cards that were available. They gave you a nice scope, plus the cards fed into a strategy that your starting world might want to encourage you to do. And again, some players could play with the bundled hands, and some players could not. It wouldn't be the most balanced thing in the world, but what have you. And so really, where possible... If you can avoid the sort of rigid scenario system, but give people on-ramps that they can either take or not to whatever degree they want, I really think that's the way to do it. And as a result, uh, you know, scenario-based games that have to be scenario-based, they're kind of rigidly forced to do it. The Commands and Colors series, I think, has done a relatively good job. So Battle or Second Edition is the only points-based more skirmishy version. The rest of them are just scenarios, but they do a pretty good job. But again, because the, the, the fundamental core card play is, is so good. Uh, Talon is a game that I really like, but the early scenarios are really kind of dull, so you have to learn to skip the early ones, which is unfortunate. And then there's the, the strange instance of Combat Commander, which is which is bizarre. So the first scenario for Combat Command- Commander is Fat Lipke, which I don't think is a very good scenario at all. But the fundamental co- core card play is, is of such quality that you're willing to forgive it. The strange thing, the strangest thing about Combat Commander is that there are s- so many historical scenarios and so many non-historical scenarios. They have scenario packs and everything. But it was only after playing the game for about half a year that I realized that the scenarios were the last thing added to the game. The game was designed and playtested and played for years using exclusively the random scenario generator. And after I learned that, which I only learned through external sources, that's the only way I play Combat Commander now, because it is so much better using the random scenario generator. Again, that's that's one of those instances where the rulebook can really do a good job of communicating what kind of experiences you might get. I'm not saying everybody should start with the random scenario generator. Some people can, and some people shouldn't. That's fine. But the fact that I only had to learn through interviews and through other other sources that sort of the expected way to play, the way the game was designed to be enjoyed was through the random scenario generator, rather than, oh, here's something we cobbled together on on the back end after playing with scenarios. Those kinds of differences can make a massive change in user experience. Yeah, that's the last point I have here. It's, It's unfortunate that when you're teaching people these games, you have to send them out into the world with this negative, you know, feeling that they have for this game and so they go play with somebody else and it's like wait this is way better i don't know why they taught me that way you know and it's it's very frustrating it is this is an editorial process designing a rule book is an editorial process teaching the game to your friends is an editorial process deciding how to communicate these things can make massive differences in terms of the experience and that's one of the reasons why i find it so frustrating when it looks like designers or publishers get careless or aren't thoughtful enough about how to manage this 
And, you know, there's also the deep nagging suspicion, the sort of the, the version of FOMO that hurts me the most is not so much the Kickstarter I didn't back, but the thought of all those scenario based games where the first scenario was uninteresting and I put it away that, you know, how many Cthulhu death may, deaths may die have I missed out on because the first scenario was crap and I instead turned to the dozen other games that I know are good. Yeah, either bad rule book or bad design or just bad introduction of the rules and what could have been a fantastic system. So thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolltodice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.